Welcome to the Ag Emerge podcast, brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. Your farming challenges are unique, so your practices should be too. We're here to share emerging ideas, build connections, and provoke conversation. Get ready to improve your soil, your crops, your livestock, and your family's livelihood. I'm your producer, Kim Chase. And I'm your host, Monty Bottens. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us. Today, we welcome Dr. Stephen Chen, Chief Medical Officer of Alameda County Recipe for Health, an award-winning food-as-medicine model that intentionally brings together healthcare, food systems, and agriculture to improve food nutrition insecurity and chronic conditions. Moni and Dr. Chen discuss the opportunities and challenges of this endeavor and the importance of focusing on food as medicine. It's a great conversation, so let's Let's jump right in. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of the Ag Emerge podcast. I'm pleased to be joined by Dr. Stephen Chen. Welcome, doctor. How are you doing today? I'm doing so well. Thank you so much for the invitation, Monty. Well, Stephen, thank you for being here. We had an opportunity to, to visit oh, several months ago, and uh, we were talking with uh, you and I think also Scott Park out in California. You've got a really unique thing going on, and I'm, I'm glad to be connected with you. And you're you're really fulfilling the uh, a quote that is attributed to Hippocrates from 2,400 years ago: "Let food be thy medicine, and medicine be thy food." Right. So, uh, tell us a little more about what what you're doing and 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 how you got to where you're at today, Doctor. Sure. Um, so I am the chief medical officer for our county here in Alameda County, our food is medicine program, and we call it Recipe for Health. And just for your audience, Alameda County is in the San Francisco Bay Area. There's about 1.7 million people in our county. And uh, we're growing and uh, developing our food as medicine program. In terms of how I got to this work, it's an interesting story. I mean, it kind of depends how far back you want to go, want me to go. But in terms of your audience, my grandfather is a, was a, a farmer in Taiwan. Uh, so I was born here in Taiwanese American. And... Um, he was third grade, educated, you know, got to third grade, illiterate, but taught himself to read and write. And he was the smartest guy in the village. Um, and I guess, you know, my my dad, his son, had an opportunity to come to the U.S. and be an engineer. He, too, kind of maintained that green thumb, but it, it kind of skipped me, I think. Uh, so I went into medicine, um, but I feel like it's a full circle because I'm kind of coming back into after training in medicine and broadening my medicine training to integrative medicine, uh, and then kind of building food as medicine into that. And then now really coming back to the land, learning from many people along the way. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's that's kind of the larger arc. Happy to talk more about some of the details if it's useful. Well, I I appreciate that. And and Stephen, you say that's a great deal of humility because, uh, you know, graduated uh, Phi Beta Kappa from Stanford, uh, you know, did uh, served at San Francisco general. And so you've been deeply immersed into um, the uh, Western medicine um, paradigm, if you will. But also you're you're deeply aware of the interconnectedness too with with your other background and and um, in you know with with everything that you've done, describe some of those um, the differences, but also those connections and, and why sometimes it's, it's hard to 
uh, see health from a holistic perspective? Yeah, let me start with that last part of the question, why it's hard to see health from a holistic perspective. I think there's lots of possibilities to how to answer that. I would say from our training perspective in kind of Western biomedicine and from a policy perspective, if we connect it to and how things are run, there's a lot of siloing that happens, a lot of specialization and a lot of like, this is my lane, this is not your lane thinking. But at the end of the day, when you come to health, yeah, it's everyone's lane at some level. And so then it's like, how do we structure beyond agency silos, but then also mental mindset silos? So we in biomedicine have powerful pa pathways to learning and kind of diagnosing and treating. Um, but I think our system, we've neglected food as a pathway until maybe more recently. Other other systems, Chinese medicine, Ayurvedic medicine, have integrated food. We have not as much. And so, you know, I trained 28 years ago at Stanford Med School and didn't get any training on how to use food as a medicine. A lot of, a lot of biochemistry helpful, but not helpful in taking care of patients. And I talk to young residents now after training and they're in the same boat, very minimal training. So I think that's kind of the, the challenge, right? And then you have ag folks who are growing the food and, um, some and then you have food systems people who are distributing the food and no one's really talking and so that's kind of part of the kind of siloed approach in which we see the world i think so the silos are 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 an interesting problem we face on a regular basis you know we have to be more and more specialized to fulfill our role within an economy right that's that's the purpose of specialization but it it gives up something doesn't it it gives up that the context uh, of it. Yeah, you, you know, it's almost like you have to have, and I tell my son this, you know, you can be very focused on something, but in your focus, how do you develop the peripheral vision to see the field, right? Learn your part, do really well, innovate, and kind of step out a little and see what are the interconnections. And I think, you know, today, uh, you you mentioned agriculture and also in food systems, there's, there's silos within there. You know, I, I'm more familiar with the agriculture uh, side and you can probably just describe some of those within the food systems themselves but you know the, there's there's a common uh, silo around um, maybe practice okay so there's also common silos around uh, the the crop that's grown right are you mm. more of a commodity farmer are you a specialty crop farmer you know are you a, a produce farmer there's there's kind of, or it's kind of siloed by crop you know, right. uh, farmers anymore don't identify as a farmer. They identify as a corn farmer or corn mm. slave, or they identify as an almond or, you know, I'm a tomato. It, it's, we've, we've kind of become hyper-specialized instead of diverse in our farming practices. Um, and then obviously, and you and I've talked at, at great length and uh, about within the practices themselves, there's a conventional farming silo, there's an organic farming silo, there's uh, this new built regenerative farming silo, and who knows, there'll be another silo coming soon. Um, but talk talk to us about those those differences that you see within within ag systems um, and within practices, and also within food systems, these silos that exist and and how they came to be. Wow. I mean, I think that you're probably more expert than me on the ag side. So I don't know if I can speak as much to that. Um, but I can say that, you know, what in these three areas, ag, 
food and, you know, food sometimes includes the ag, but I think I'm talking more about once the food is produced and then distributed that piece. And then the, uh, the health side of things, I think there's just lots of disconnects, right? Um, I think that specialization again, helps us get really deep in one area and we put our eggs in our basket there, but when ecosystems are changing, uh, that stresses those silos and some of those silos start collapsing. And so it's like, how do we continue to have uh, broadening and interconnectivity between that? So I don't know if I'm going to answer your question very skillfully. I, I think that, you know, there's all those farming systems that you are much more aware of and your, your uh, community of listeners. Um, once we get into food, there's just, I think we have a system that tries to push for the cheapest food and also for kind of maybe more processed food now. Um, and then if highly efficient distribution mechanisms, regional distribution systems, I think we've taken the local and, uh, and regional pieces, maybe not as, not as much inform not as much strength there because we're always trying to scale. We're trying to scale fast. Right. Um, and then in medicine, I can speak much more about siloing. I mean, we are trained in silos and, and the compensation is higher for people who get into much higher specialties. You know, you go to a heart doctor for the heart, you don't talk about anything else, but they may not recognize it's a heart issue. It may be something else, right? Um, you go to the GI doctor for their gut, but someone has to put it all together. Um, and so that's all much more broad and theoretical. I mean, I could talk about my work if that's helpful to your audience, just to help kind of give an example. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I want to get there, but I want uh, just, just one more quick thing on there. Uh, the food systems, like you talked about, we're getting to more and more processed food. And now, do you think it really, it's the food system is not purposely trying to do processed food. That's feedback they're, they're getting because people want to buy processed food because it's, it's quicker, more convenient, possibly cheaper and those kind of things. Isn't that what's, isn't it kind of a pull through from the, the consumer driving that? And if it is, how do we change that? Yeah, I think there there is a pull side, right? Convenience is a big part of being American and we want things quick and fast. So there's certainly a cultural and a pull side, but we also have to look at the kind of history and policy. And I'm not an expert in this history piece, but what I understand was after the war, after you know the early uh, days of World War One or two, I should know the difference, but in terms of when the policy happened, um, there was a lot of nutrient deficiencies in our uh, and food insecurity. And so there was a big policy push to fortify foods. And so we've achieved that, right? The, the, the companies and people have responded to that need. And so our, our foods, our packaged foods have all these vitamins that people throw in and they take out the, the kind of the main stuff and put in these enrich it this way and that. And so the fortification and, um, kind of, processing of food has been achieved to meet certain policy goals for a particular era. But our issue now is no longer around that foods, food nutrient de uh, lack right now, because it's all processed, it's in there. Um, we certainly still have food insecurity across our population, especially unveiled by COVID. But I think that um, we have to look at policy. That is a big piece because that helps set the conditions in which we all play. And then there's also just the pieces around um, our disconnect from food, right? Everything is quick and easy, and we don't even know what the food actually is or who our farmers are and, and where the food comes from. Well, here's what I love about what you're doing, Stephen, is, you know, you saw a big problem 
And what most people don't do, well, first off, most people don't see the problem. <laughs> Secondly, if they do see the problem, they're like, yeah, that's, that's not my problem to deal with. I just need to do my own little thing. Oh no, <laughs> you saw a big problem and you have done some amazing things to try to solve this. So dive into what you're doing for food is medicine and uh, the medical and, and those kind of things that are, that are happening and, and, and what, what you're up to here, your main focus of your work today. Yeah, no, thanks so much. Um, so let me describe recipe for health. Uh, it is our food is medicine program. And, and I decide, I say that it is a clinically integrated food is medicine model that is prescribing produce grown regeneratively and organically and health coaching. So food and behavioral and nutrition supports to sustain the change in our patients. So clinically integrated food as medicine, produce regeneratively and organically and, um, and uh, behavior change and support. We all need it, right? We all need some type of coaching. Um, so clinically integrated we and food as medicine, at least the work that we're doing, is we are starting this work in the clinics, in the healthcare system. We talked earlier about silos. Healthcare has traditionally never dealt with food. Um, only now, after the White House conference, there's just much more momentum around that. Many food as medicine programs are food systems folks in the middle of ag and healthcare trying to figure out how do I get this food into healthcare. And so, but it's challenging because doctors are pretty, you know, siloed out, pretty busy, uh, and nurse practitioners and PAs and whatnot. So we're clinically integrated. We start within the belly of healthcare and figure out how do we integrate in these systems into the into our actual patient care. We do that with five ingredients. Our recipes, like as many ingredients, and these ingredients can be adapted to your locale. So we think we have a pathway, a recipe that others can use. Um, our first ingredient are the safety net health centers. So there's a network of around 18,000, what we call federally qualified health centers throughout the nation. Incredible places, uh, got bipartisan support. It's our safety net system. When you lose a job and you don't have health care, you can get taken care of at the community health centers. And they're incredible places, equity places, taking care of patients of all types. We center and start our work there in healthcare. We're not starting, in, at least in county, Alameda County, yet, with the private system right now, because we want to say this is where there's a lot of need. The second ingredient is what we call a food pharmacy, pharmacy with an F-A-R-M. And that's because we directly connect with our farm. We have a local farm, a nonprofit farm called Dig Deep Farms. So I'll talk more about those three, the, the different, but let me name the ingredients. And then, and that has a food hub as well to help with the distribution. And then the third ingredient is our behavioral pharmacy spelled with a traditional pharmacy approach. But you'll see pharmacy in both the second and third ingredients. And Monty, it's like this. If I, if I wrote you a prescription either for a medicine, like an antibiotic or a blood pressure medicine, or I wrote you a behavioral prescription to eat better and you know exercise, where would you take your prescription right now? Good question. You well, you know, if you, for for medicine input, you'd you'd go to, uh, you know, um, drugstore of some kind. But you know, for for food, where do you go? How do you know? 
Yeah. So you take it to, you take your drug prescription to a pharmacy, all these distribution points throughout the nation and it's convenient, uh, accessible. And hopefully, you know, right, you know, high quality, but the, hopefully the med is good for you. Right. If you didn't have that pharmacy, what would you do? Right. You'd walk out of my clinic. Like, where do I go? I have no idea where to get this medicine. So you wouldn't take the medicine. Well, isn't that what we're doing with food when we make prescriptions for food and for behavior? It's almost like a prescription to nowhere, right? Just you give it and then the patient comes back three to four months and you're like, what happened? I didn't fulfill it because we don't have structures and systems in places like we do for pharmaceutical medicines. So that was the concept behind, behind our food pharmacy and behavioral pharmacy. So ingredient one, two, and three, the fourth ingredient that you alluded to was our health plan. And we are working with our Medicaid health plan. In California, we, all, we call it Medi-Cal. Um, and that we're using the Medicaid system to say, we're going to pay for this food as medicine prescription, this recipe for health, and cover it for our patients, just like they would pay for your blood pressure medicine, right? Because you pay your premiums and, and all of that. So we're working with the Medicaid health plans. And then we are that's our fourth, uh, our fourth ingredient. And the fifth ingredient is recipe for health, our hub at the county. And we basically create and bring this ecosystem together. So it all talks together through the electronic health record, all the claims go through. And I try to, because I'm a doc and I was a former medical director, how do I, I try to make this as easy as possible for my fellow clinicians who are on the front lines. We don't want complicated workflows. We want easy clicks through electronic health record. We want all of that to go smoothly so that the patient gets what they've been prescribed and there's not in a lot of issues. And so that's the recipe that we're using. And we think that can scale and, and, and there's an equity piece for us. We're starting with our most vulnerable patients. We're starting with uh, folks who don't have access. We're saying we have a whole health insurance plan based on supporting folks that way. Uh, we can do this. And for the states that don't have Medicaid, you can still do it. Because we, we started this without the Medicaid support, too. You have different grants and foundations and whatnot. The Ag Emerge podcast is brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. The ASN team is hands-on, digging in and invested in regenerative agriculture. Along with the proper plant nutrition and biologicals to boost your soil microbiome, we provide the ideas and implementation guidance to support you on your soil health journey. So stop farming the same way and contact Ag Solutions Network today at asn.farm. I think what everyone can appreciate is the holistic approach that you have to this, because, you know, even like what you're saying there at the end, something I would never have thought of is just how is the ease of implementation for healthcare workers to utilize the program? Because if they can't pull it off, it isn't easy. It isn't integrated into what their daily workflows or processes are. It isn't going to happen. You could have the best food. You could have the best, uh, you know, health check and coaching, everything. But if, if you can't, you know, implement it, uh, I, you know, I admire uh, what what you've put into the recipe ingredients, if you will. Yeah. I mean, I think that uh, without, and this is part of the siloing. So this is why I started with clinically integrated. Absolutely. We could have amazing regenerative food all out there in the food system, but, and we're waiting for the doctors to refer, but the doctors have no easy pathways. They have no awareness that that exists because we're bombarded with so much that we're taking care of for our patients. So we, we integrate it from the get-go in the belly of the healthcare system. 
so in our our earlier discussions where how we met was you're, you're trying to uh, be able to come up with a way to identify uh, food that you can recommend or prescribe uh, and, and know that it's getting the nutrient density and, and meeting the goals that you're you're hoping for. And then also, how, how do we then access that on a larger scale? Is is that been one of the greater challenges to to this recipe of for success? I think it's been a challenge, but a wonderful challenge. And I think we've made a lot of headway and that's what's exciting. And that's why I think we've gotten a lot of attention for the work that we're doing because again, kind of, it's great that you started with the theme of silo. We started with the theme of silos because we built uh, within healthcare, the, the pathways and then brought in the infrastructure around it. And so we are sourcing the food from a farm that is growing using regenerative and organic practices, not certified. Right, because it takes a pathway to get certification, and we have um, BIPOC-led farms. So our farmers are uh, African American leader, farm director. Um, we're really trying to bring in diversity to our farm, and so we have that piece. We have folks adopting these regenerative and organic practices, um, and hopefully, at getting all the outcomes. I mean, we literally, our farmers are not using any pesticides uh, right now. Um, and they're growing, uh, you know, up, across, we have around 70 acres of land, urban land, and uh, not all of it's cultivated because we're just starting out still. We're growing that pathway and and uh, getting this type of high quality nutrient dense food to patients that would normally never get this. And then saying, this should be what all Americans have access to, not just because you can go to Whole Foods and pay for it but that this is just what our food system was. Maybe what it was many, you know, 50, 60, 80 years ago. This is what grandpa and grandma had in the markets. And this is what we fed our kids at schools instead of what I just saw at my kid's school, which was um, frosted cornflakes, trick. I mean, it was amazing. Uh, muffins, uh, you know, chocolate muffins, a whole bunch of stuff that I'm like, this is going to lead to my kids having fatty liver and metabolic syndrome and, pre-diabetes and the stuff that we're going to take care of downstream because we're not paying attention to the question, where does the food come from and how do we grow it? And that is the central question that I ask the food as medicine community, because I think, again, we doctors are now getting into food as medicine, but kind of saying, well, it's anything, any kind of food is better than Twinkies. So conventional, non-conventional, who cares? Just anything. And I worry that if we only, if we don't really ask this question, we will go down what has happened with free school meals, which is the cheapest you know, highly processed foods. So we have the opportunity, Monty, if we in medicine leverage medicine's kind of highest act point of taking care of patients with high quality nutrient dense medicine food and saying that if we invest in this way, we are going to pay for it this way, pay for food grown this way and the farmers a living wage, we'll not only get human health benefits, we're going to get health equity benefits because all communities are going to get access and improvements. We're also going to get uh, economic health, local, you know, I'm using the health because I'm a health guy, economic health with local and regional systems built. And then you're going to get climate health because we're sequestering more carbon or we're, uh, you know, not polluting the waterways with so many synthetics and chemicals, chemical inputs and, and really taking care of the land, right, from a more uh, a holistic approach. So there, you know, there has to have been, and, and we've talked about some of the 
the the skeptics or uh, maybe not skeptics isn't the right word, but uh, people are okay. Um, you know, getting somebody off of, um, you know, a processed snack in a bag at a convenience store because they live in a food desert and have low income and getting them to eating a fresh diet, you know, isn't that good enough? Why does it have to be regenerative or organic? You know, why are you, why are you pushing for this? And, and those kind of things talk about some of that struggle. And, and I guess I'm interested in the mindset, uh, that you've had to overcome because that's that's really what we're focusing on here is the paradigm how to shatter those paradigms of everything that we've just have accepted to be true but maybe necessarily isn't yeah i appreciate that it's a challenge right because i'm working against kind of the typical i mean first of all food is medicine just making it into the lexicon of medicine and people actually considering it now specialists going oh wow i guess there's credence to this stuff that you guys are doing you know the white house has talked about in the it's like it's like, wow, okay, so that's great. That's kind of been broken. Uh, then it's like, well, let's just get any kind of fresh produce or any, you know, we have different situations. And I'm like, that's great. You know, we have that. And in certain locales, that's all you got. And so for sure, let's do that. And this is where I want to be clear, because I think we in this country, we get into either or, you're either this or you're that. And I'm saying, hey, we're actually a spectrum. And we have to adapt to the local conditions. I have a North Star when I, if you're my patient, Monty, I have a North Star for your health and I hope it matches with what your goals are. But it may not because you have so many things going on. So as I take care of you, and I'm going to take this doctor's lens to, and I'll transfer it. As I take care of you, I'm thinking, where is my patient on their journey of health? You may be at a different place than maybe one of my Olympic, uh, like an Olympic athlete patient, right? Who's Maybe, maybe not. I don't know, right? Like maybe you guys are the same, but looking at the same performance and whatnot. But like, there's going to be different sets of questions and different ways to optimize. And uh, we got to be sensitive to our local condition, if you will, from the from the accent, but also to our patient and make it patient-centered. So I think in the same way, my mindset is we have a North Star. Let's, let's, let's not give up the North Star because what happens with policy is when you do, then you set policy and then you're just, incrementally changing you got to push hard when there's these moments for a, a, a bigger north star and then you create ladders or tiers to get there and say everyone can be in this big tent but some who have already gotten to the north star maybe they're going to get in our economic system a higher incentive or a higher premium or or a compensation that drives that and those who are not there are going to get you know, somewhere along the line, depending on their practices and outcomes, are you going to get something else? And that's this continuous improvement piece that we do in healthcare anyways with our patients. I'm not going to, I'm not going to prescribe. I have to really look at who my patient is. So that's the mindset piece that I would just say I, I'm thinking about in this work. Let's, let's not fight each other. It has to be either this or that. Let's create space for multiple pathways and then incentive, create the incentives around it because I think people start fighting when it's a resource issue. Well, I have medicine that, and well, we we are we are a powerful country with lots of resources. We have a we need to get out of the mindset of scarcity, and take care of each other and create pathways. We're all in this together. So, uh, I I agree. And and one of the things you talked about in that is including everyone. But I I think it's really important to not be comfortable to stay where you're at. Uh, and I think that's part of your your lean process training, right? And I, right, I right. coming through, uh, and, and I really think that's that needs to be a critical element of regenerative farming. You know, it, the regenerative movement, which has become popular here in the last five years, 
is is one that is not a destination. You know, I think kind of like what you said, you know, organic standard, when it got codified, right, it, it became kind of a, oh, we hit that and we stay. And, you know, we're not continuously improving. And I think that's one of the hopes of of a regenerative mindset is is continuous improvement. It's all about continuously improving the quality of food that we're raising, the quality of the soil that we're raising it on, the quality of community that we're creating, you know, the quality of life for the farmer itself, or him or herself. And um, how do you, you know, when the current system is oriented towards hitting benchmarks or standards and, you know, how do you build in that continuous improvement mentality to 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 these processes uh, i mean we in medicine and healthcare we've become bigger adoptees of quality improvement techniques and methods you mentioned lean i've been trained in lean not necessarily certified in lean but our whole health system went through lean and i was one of the leaders we had we had waves of leadership training in that mm -hmm. um, so i think when we look at our data at least in healthcare if we can create dashboards and data, usually clinicians, when they see their data, that becomes an effect, they start making changes. And so one of it is just continuous feedback of data. Um, but the data is not just standard dashboards. It's also the data of what we, what we experience with our patients. Our patients telling us a powerful story, that is a data point that has impact on us. Wow, this patient is saying, they attended our recipe for health program. They got this incredible food. They know how to, cook kale in a way they've never done it or they've never tasted kale and now they're getting it they're doing it in community with other patients who are suffering from various conditions and learning when a patient when a doctor hears that that's a data point for change and improvement um, i think the other piece is and i'm not sure if this is where you're going to around standards and kind of where we just sit we don't want to be so rigid around standards that it's like you do this standard and it's either this or that uh, and you have to follow this guideline this way. And we often in medicine say, you have to use clinical judgment. You know, standards are really important. Evidence is really important. How do we adapt that to the patient in front of me? I'm treating the patient, not the textbook, not the numbers. And I don't know if there's a similar thing that can be said in ag, um, but I think we, we, we need to have some standards at some level. But even that I think is an interesting question for us. If we take a kind of, a mindset of how knowledge is created and how we trust knowledge, right? There, we have tended to use standards and certifications, but in other systems, they've done lineage. You learn from this master or this trainer who's, who's very well-known and has gotten great results and you've passed on. And, and so you adopt some of these practices and approaches and, and that is, that is sufficient, right? But I think we tend to say, well, then you get charlatans coming in saying whatever and making a big buck off of whoever and, and whatnot. So it's not either or. You got We got to find some ways around that, around this. But I think in all areas, just to go back to your original question, the mindset of continuing to help our patients improve, um, to help our systems, to kind of organize the system so they can make it easier. We have to always keep be on our toes to do that right. Otherwise, it just doesn't work for our patients or or the system starts changing and you're not adapting to that. So share with us uh, a, kind of a hypothetical person who presents himself to your your clinic. Um, you know, you or one of your team members meets with them and they pre prescribe a recipe for for health, for, for success. Um, that process, what happens in, 
kind of right. kind of walk a person through what what they receive from you and the follow up and and everything and how that works and then after that I'd love for you to share you know maybe a story as you can you know for uh, privacy issues but uh, success stories and, sure. and how that how that's happened. Yeah. So a typical, let's say Monty, you're our typical patient. You just oh, come in. Here we go. Well, and let's just say, <laughs> recognize, um, just so your audience knows, we we started this work at the county level. I was doing this work at a health at a health at a federally qualified health center, Alameda Health System, where's my home clinic where I was a medical director. And then you, you asked earlier, like, how did I come to this work? Some a little more detail around that. And then I was we, I and my team we were innovating. We had a chance to build a brand new clinic. We built a brand new clinic. We built a kitchen space in the clinic, group medical visit rooms. So we were doing group visits. And then we grew a food as medicine approach. Um, so we're, I'm going to go there and then I'll come back to your question. Just, uh, I remember going to the county. I got asked to go to the county to present to the supervisors. In Alameda County, you have five supervisors. They run the whole county. And uh, I was asked to present our model. And then I basically said in, the, in 2016, I said, imagine the day to supervisors when I, as a clinician, can prescribe food as medicine and it's covered by Medi-Cal or by insurance. Well, fast forward last year, 2022, six years later, that's happened now here in Alameda County, and it's now a pathway in, in California, right? So, so just to give you a little more context, you're one of our patients coming into one of our, right now we have five total health systems around 10 different clinic sites serving the most vulnerable. 83% of our patients are, are um, what we call BIPOC. You know, it's a new term just for black indigenous people of color. So lots of folks in here in a very diverse community and uh, everyone is Medicaid or, or uh, low insurance, right? So that's our population, right? So I'm gonna give you that context. Served over almost 5,000 people now uh, getting the following. So Monty, you walk into my clinic, you will be screened by a medical assistant for food insecurity. That medical assistant's been trained. You may or may not have food insecurity. If you have food insecurity, she will click the boxes and it'll signal to me, the doctor or the nurse practitioner or the psychiatrist, oh, Monty also has food insecurity in addition to the other issues he's here for. So we're screening. If you don't screen, you don't know. Okay, so just to pause yeah. you, food insecurity, what does that mean? Food Not everybody may know what that means. It's a great question. So there's, and I mean, so food insecurity is really a question of how to, of getting access uh, access to food that is safe and nutritious to help you continue to live the life you need to in terms of full of energy. Right? It's not just any food. There is there is a move though to move from just access to any kind of quote safe, sufficient food to food that you use to prevent, treat, and reverse chronic conditions. Once we move into that application, we move from food insecurity to nutrition insecurity. So two concepts, food and nutrition insecurity connected. One is really just about access to basics. In other words, do you have enough calories in a day to, to right. survive, right? To You're survive and actually to do a little more than just survive. Stomach, right? Okay. right. But I think there's been a critique of that to say that's, that's dealing with hunger and very important. We've got to deal with hunger. But just because I give you a bunch of processed food may deal with your hunger. Actually, it may not because processed food doesn't actually keep you satiated. You actually want more, um, especially sugary foods. 
then that's a problem. So it can't just be about hunger. You know, we're, this is why we're bringing in the nutrition and the health and like, how do we connect it all? Not wanting to say that you can't deal with hunger. Absolutely got to deal with that, especially children. But let's, let's make the offerings more than what my kids get, right? Frosted flakes, you know, uh, stuff like that. Let's actually have whole foods, nutritious foods. So once you start getting into that, then you have some prevention aspects. You have treatment opportunities. When I'm treating you for your diabetes, I can use food, uh, the veggies that we send from our produce, uh, from our farm to you, et cetera. So, so there's that food and nutrition insecurity. You get screened. You're right now screened for food insecurity. You're positive or negative. If you're positive, the medical assistant will click the box and get, us, get you into a referral to our program. I will see you, Monty, and I'll say, oh, okay, you're here. See the food insecurity. What are you here to talk about? Oh, you have diabetes, you have high blood pressure, depression. Great. Here's your, you got your medicines that you're taking. Do you also want to check out our recipe for health and uh, this program where we're going to send you, I'm going to prescribe you food grown regeneratively and organically. It's going to come to your home weekly. We have a delivery. We have our vans. We have county, you know, purchase some vans, refrigerated vans. Um, it's going to be grown locally by our farmers, grown this way, and it'll come to your home weekly for 12 weeks, a bag, a box. And you'll say, okay, that sounds great. There's no cost to me, right? And I'm like, yeah, there's no cost. And Monty, you know, it's one thing to get food. We also have uh, health coaching. You want some health coaching? Would that be helpful to you? And you're like, oh, tell me more. Well, health coaching, we have a bunch of health coaches that will coach you through. And so you want to come to the clinic? I'll be your doctor with the health coaches and you'll be with 15 other patients and we're all learning from each other, diabetes, hypertension, depression. Or you're saying, yeah, I can't make it at the clinic, but I'm going to go with the county group and that's fine. So that's that behavioral pharmacy through our team called Open Source Wellness. And they do this amazing job of health coaching. So now you're getting the food weekly. You're learning how to cook and prepare it. Uh, you're learning tips from each other. There's movement in that group. Like we have a movement coach. There's a mindfulness piece where people actually break out and do stress reduction techniques. They have small groups where the health coaches meet with the teams, like teams of four or five patients. And I, as a physician, will be in the room checking in on you and how your diabetes is going, your blood pressure and whatnot. And then the coaches are going to call you in between or text you in between. Hey, Monty, how you doing on that goal that you set weekly? So that's that circle. You're getting the food and the health coaching it's prescribed to you by me, your clinician, your physician. We have trained all the medical assistants on screening. We train, I train a lot of the doctors, nurse practitioners, and we brought in the notion of who can prescribe. We say, it doesn't that just have to be a doctor, nurse practitioner, or PA. It can also be the behavioral health team. It can be a community health worker because they, can, they know if you're food insecure, or if you have a chronic condition, they can make that prescription too. And so I train the doctors on this. We have a great training system and program and gotten like a 95% net promoter score of people saying that they would recommend this to their colleagues. Um, and so you get this and you start getting changed. And then I can tell you a story about a patient. Well, let me pause on that. Like that's that, that's the sequence of recipe for health. Well, that that's incredible. And I, I love how you have the cross training to where a person on the front line sees something they can make a frontline decision, you know, at that moment in time to, to correct or amend uh, what's going on in that. Um, and, and I love that, uh, the, the training aspect of that. And I can almost imagine, you know, you've got a complete database system where everyone shares that information on the patient progress to where everybody's up to date and quickly and conveniently can know how to 
best to implement this holistic plan for their health, right? Yeah, I mean, we use the electronic health record and it's we've built in a referral to recipe for health. So the, the medical assistant or the clinicians or the behaviors can click that. And then we built the whole back end so that that will get approved by insurance. We will get delivery to your home. We'll get you into the health coaching teams. And yeah, I mean, it's, so I'll tell you a story, right? Uh, without, um, you know, divulging the patient. Uh, I was in, I was one of the medical providers in a group at one of our community health centers. I had a probably around a 65 year old um, Mexican woman, Mexican American woman who had diabetes and was on insulin for about 15 years. And she was on a dose at around 72 units a day, 72, 76 units a day. That's a lot of insulin, twice a day injections. Mm-hmm. She came into our program and she was having muscle aches because she was taking certain medicines. She was getting low sugars events and like really feeling very shaky and then would have to eat sugary food just to kind of bolster it up. And then also had high sugars. It was just this kind of yo-yo off and on. So I had a chance to work with her through our recipe for health and we uh, shifted how much uh, the frequency of her eating. We fr- shifted the type of food she was eating with the health coaches and and the weekly visits. And then basically I was able to reduce her insulin uh, over time to get it down to zero to five. Hmm. 76 units slowly down to zero to five. And her hema, uh, we, we use a, a blood marker that measures your average uh, your average sugar in the last three months. It's called the hemoglobin A1C. We were able to reduce her her blood sugar markers even on less insulin because she shifted her food habits and the behaviors, and she had access to this amazing food now. Um, and you know she got uh, SNAP, uh, we call it CalFresh, so she could purchase this food you know beyond the prescription. So that was incredible. And then she no longer had the lower sugar events where she was feeling like she had to eat a lot of sugary foods to kind of bring her sugar back up. Each of those, if she had gone to the hospital, I'd spend about $15,000 right there for one hospitalization for a low sugar event. She was having multiple events a week. So that's just one example, you know, of one of our patients that I've taken care of. And um, yeah, so we're looking at our results. We have a, we have a research and evaluation team looking at our results and seeing what's the effect of this and the measuring all of this. So you started to go into her A1C had, had changed. What, what did that change from? Do you remember? I think it was around 8.6. I have to go back to the chart, but it was maybe in the eights. And then it went down into the 7.4s. Wow. And usually you, you know, if you can get under seven, it's great. As you get older, sometimes we're, we don't always want as tight control. Although I think there's going to be newer thinking on that too. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that, um, plus I'd assume she had a lot of side um, or I don't, don't want to say other conditions side, related side to the... Yeah high doses of insulin that she's getting. So not only, you know, chemical physiological issues within her body, but then she's also got some mental health issues, right? Because she's, she's low, she's high. She just, I don't know what I can do. Uh, I can't rely on myself. I, I can't, I can't venture far. I have to have food with me. You know, all those things that a diabetic goes through. Um, how did that change her life? I mean, she was, she couldn't believe that she didn't have to, use as much insulin and she i think she was so used to doing for 15 years she was like are you sure it's almost like she wanted to kind of be put on it again you know or or increase the doses so 
I think it was just like many things when you're like, wow, I've been doing something for so long and now there's a material difference and just getting used to it. Um, I don't think she had a depression diagnosis, but I do think like formal depression diagnosis, but I do think her activity level improved, you know, her energy level improved. So all of these benefits. And then, you know, with diabetes, it's an issue of insulin, uh, type two diabetes is an issue, issue of insulin resistance. And by injecting insulin, you have the side effects of creating more insulin resistance. It's this contradiction, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're really helping her become more insulin sensitive. So she doesn't need to rely as much on external insulin, which when you take, when you have insulin, you have, your, your body is in storage mode. So you tend to get weight gain with insulin. That's just part of the the, the physiology, the hormone pathways. You, you can't really burn your own fat when your insulin is around in your body. That's why if you're eating frequently through the day, it's hard to actually burn your own fat in your own fat stores and stuff like that. So, so now uh, you started to get into it a little bit, the economics of this. So everybody looks at this like, oh, well, you know, you're paying for people's food and you're paying for expensive food and, oh, you're delivering it to their home and you're doing all this health coaching and group meetings and all this. Look at the spend you have on this person. So how hard is it? First off, it uh, talk about how hard it is to do a, essentially a comparative budget. You know, it's, it's one thing if you're doing a comparative budget on a widget. Okay. But we're doing a comparative budget on a human life. Okay. The, the totally different context, right? But you have uh, Hey, we're spending uh, X amount here, but we avoided the $15,000 admission. We avoided the however many hundreds of dollars a month in insulin costs. We avoided all the other side effect costs. How does that, can, can you do a comparative budget of that and then then present that to show, okay, yes, we, we invested this, but we didn't have to spend this. And what's the value of the quality of life? At sure. the- I love it. Uh, so you have your hard dollar, hard day, the hard dollars, and then you have the quality of life piece, which is you, you can't really qualify as much, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there's a report that the Rockefeller Foundation commissioned uh, called the True Cost of Food, and uh, just the high level numbers are we kind of spend our spend on food per year is, is one point is about one point one trillion, but then you add in all the expenditures on the all the expense all the cost right on what a poor food spend leads to in terms of the economy in terms of lost wages in terms of the environment the impact on the environment in terms of the human health like uh, the conditions we're dealing with and that's another two trillion so a true cost of food is about three trillion so we're not seeing those effects we're externalizing those effects to other sectors other agencies to deal with. So, oh, we want to keep the food as cheap as possible. You know, it's a 1.1 trillion, but now actually when you total it all up, you're around 3 trillion. So that's massive. There's hidden expenses that we have to account for if we're going to take an economic approach to this. So that's one piece. I think the second piece though, is you got to, you pay now, you pay later, right? And so um, there are studies now within the food as medicine space, looking at what is the spend? What is the cost? And I think, you know, certain interventions like medically tailored meals, there's a a wonderful study that came out. If you gave everyone who needed it uh, for in for the period of time they needed it, you're saving potentially, I think it was 13 billion. 
I may be, I, there's two studies I may be confusing. It's 13 billion or 33 billion, right? So there's there's savings. I think it was 13 for the medical tailored meals. I should have that. I'll, I'll clarify after the podcast. Um, so there's kind of macro level changes that you're like, wow, there's something promising here, right? And then you go to like, okay, let's do some comparisons. Well, how much does Ozempic, this, this obesity drug, right? Where you inject yourself twice, you inject yourself to kind of, slow down your gut so you don't feel as hungry and you do see weight reduction, this anti-obesity drug, how much does that spend right, per month? That's, you know, so that's about 1200 to 1200 bucks a month. How long, you, how long are you gonna put a patient on that medicine? In, med in Western medicine, we tend to start you on a blood pressure medicine or diabetes, and oh, you're just gonna be on this for life and we're gonna have to increase the dose or hopefully you can do whatever, right? So what's that cost compared to actually a lower cost food as medicine intervention still costs. We got to invest in food that we're using now in a medical way or a supportive way or a treatment way, but the costs are far lower. You can, you can feed a family of four. Uh, I think there was one study from one of my colleagues at UCSF is like uh, 300 to $400 per month versus one admission at 13 to 15,000. It's pretty clear there, right? But I think, you know, not to simplify it, there's actuaries, there's econo economists who are, you know, specialized in this, who can go very deep into it and say, you know, this and that and provide much more nuance. But at the end of the day, as a clinician, when I take care of patients, you have enough stories of people changing. Like, wow, I've gotten, they, they have a car, they're going down this, this pathway and I'm looking from above and I can see that pathway is going to end up in a cliff and they're going to fall eventually. And they're just roaring along. Well, if I know that I'm sh shifting them and they're going down a different path, and they're not going to go off the cliff now, and they can continue to extend that, what's the value? How do we quantify the value of that? We're so fast in our value cycle times around measuring things that we're saying, well, well what's the return on investment in one year or in three months or six months? Well, some of these are longer life, longer longer lifespan issues, right? So. We need a longer tail to actually measure that. But we're, we're, our economic model tends to be, I need returns on a quarterly basis, right? So. But I think there's a you know, pretty powerful um, facts there that get overlooked. We looked at, what, oh, what are we spending? But we forget to look at what are we saving? And I, I think there's a definite argument for that. And one other thing I'd love to see, and maybe you're aware of it, you referred to the Rockefeller Center report. I would love to see what are the externalized costs of conventional farming that are being absorbed by the environment and or uh, ecosystem and, and communities? For so sure. poor water quality, right. uh, poor air quality, uh, groundwater contamination, species re, uh, e extinction or reduction, uh, all of these unintended or you know externalized costs of the current ag model which when you're prescribing food that is regenerative or inorganic, that would eliminate those costs. You know, that's probably another $3 trillion of costs that we're externalizing that we yeah. don't account for today. I would love to know if there's a study that you could combine those two together and just realize how, how far we've gone for cheap food, but we're overspending for cheap food. So if if it's uh, if it makes sense, well, this is a podcast, so your your people your folks aren't watching, but I have a slide I can walk you through that actually covers some of that if it's useful. Well, we've got uh, we have YouTube, so 
Uh, this is going to make people switch over to YouTube. If they're, they're super interested, they're going to pull over to the side of the road and stop. Unlike me that would watch it while driving. Okay. So, <laughs> so yeah, if you, that's the case, that let me, up? yeah, I'll put it, I'm going to walk you through the side. I just, I just spoke sure. at Rodale. Uh, Rodale Institute asked me to keynote and I kind of on this using Medicaid to help kind of transform our, our food systems piece. Um, so let me share with you. Oh, it says host disabled. Oh, Kim, she's got the magic and she's going to make that happen. Okay. Multiple churches. Yep. There she goes. She's just clicking away. All right. And, uh, uh, she, pay no attention to the Kim behind the curtain there. So, okay. There so you can you see my screen? Yes, we can. Okay. The true cost of food, 3.2 trillion. Let's break this down. And I, ha I have to, I have a 10 o'clock. So we are current national expenditures, 1.1. The additional cost from five metric quantitative metrics across five impact areas, which include the ones that you're talking about, are at two. And then we have the true cost at three. And I loved your question. Well, what about the quality of life? Right. So that's the qualitative impact. We don't have a monetary set there. So we're either paying now, right? We're saying, hey, we're paying 1.1, but or we're paying later with the additional 2.1 externalities. But let's break down this further with this next slide. So human health, right? So we're we're at the one point one. We're very we we that's the dollars going in and out of the system. How do we make sense of the two point one? The two point one from a human health, and this is the biggest cost, is one point one. That's considering all of these issues from our foods, our processed foods, and our food system, as well as food insecurity, obesity, blood pressure, uh, direct impact on human health from pollution. But let's now look at the environment. What you were talking about, greenhouse gas emissions water use, soil erosion, that's another $350 billion. And then biodiversity, land use, pollution, $455 billion. Let's look at livelihoods. You know, we have exploitation with child labor, underpayment, wage theft, lack of benefits, occupational damage, you know, with the pesticides, with our farm workers being exposed to and whatnot. And then you have your economic subsidies, which are, you know, everyone gets in a, in a, in a it gets really, you know, fights about subsidies, you know, farm bill and whatnot, but it's small compared to everything else. That's how we get our 2.1. Hmm. Interesting. Now, it, uh, there's a lot of things to consider that go into it. And I, I know you have to get going here to get to completing your mission. But first off, I want to thank you um, for your leadership that you're providing in this and, and being willing to bravely go and and put together groups that are just not normally associating with each other to, to make your vision happen. I, I, I thank you for that. The thing is, is that there's going to be people listening to this podcast and they're going to say, how do I get involved? How do I do this? How does this happen in my community? Help sign me up. How do we, how do we get going? What advice do you have for them? Gosh, that's, I think there's so many pathways that are happening right now and kind of depends where you are. I, I mean, I have a dream where, we connect, you know, we have 10 or 11 states right now that are wanting to do Medicaid uh, and do uh, these waivers, this way of paying for food through Medicaid. And I say, let's just start with the Medicaid for now, because it's there, there's a pathway. And let's reproduce the recipe. And let's find a set of community health centers in these 10 states. Let's bring them all together with their health plans. We And then find the ag people. Where are the ag folks that would want to source and create, we create forward contracts? I mean, I think the, the, the ag people told me they're ready. When healthcare is ready, we're ready. So let's get, let's line up those, uh, the folks growing the food. And then the folks, if there's a food hub or some type of distribution mechanism in between and make that happen and basically do the recipe in these 10 states and measure it. 
um, and start there. That's a low-hanging fruit, potentially. The dream would be, how do we then implement? Not just kind of talk about it, but let's actually implement and move effectively and, and make it happen and fund it. That would be one pathway that I'm trying to figure out, like how to best do that uh, and who holds that and who actually manages and operationalizes that. It's quite a dream, and I appreciate that you're willing to dream it. So there's definitely going to be a follow-up podcast in the future here, Stephen, because uh, okay. a lot of things have happened in just a few months since we last talked. So uh, we certainly want to visit again in the future, uh, keep us updated. And any way that we can help or our, our listeners or anyone else can get involved, let us know. We'll we'll let them let, pass it along and, and see how we can help make your dream a reality. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, uh, Monty, for the opportunity to speak with you and to Meet your podcast listeners. All right, Dr. Chen, we look forward to it. And uh, we also reserve that when we get back to a live event someday, we certainly want you to have a part of that. So thanks, Appreciate Dr. It. Chen, and okay. uh, keep, keep doing great things. Thank you. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this important conversation. It's exciting to learn how healthcare and agriculture are working together. And as Dr. Chen said, it's all about continuously improving the quality of the food that we're raising and the quality of the soil we're raising it on. And as always, if you'd like to learn more about what we're doing to help growers improve their soil by adopting effective practices, check out our website at asn.farm. And there you can click on links to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. There's a lot of great things happening and always something to learn. Thanks for listening.